Again, I want to echo the words that have been said. Again, happy Mother's Day. We'll say it multiple times today, but we're grateful for the influence of all the women in our lives, mothers, grandmothers, adopted mothers, whatever you might call them. We are grateful for your influence. I'm grateful that you would join us today to worship the Lord. And as we move into our time of studying the scriptures, I want to make note of our time of giving. You are able to give both online, you can give via text, you can scan the QR code, you can even give the old-fashioned way as you exit, right? Lots of opportunities for you to give, and I say that not so that you can give and help us pay the bills, but so that you can give towards the mission of God so that we can continue to show the love of Jesus to the men, women, and children around us. So thank you for supporting our ministries, and thank you for supporting what the Lord is doing here. Now today we are continuing our study in the book of Acts, looking at Paul's first missionary journey, and we are looking at what I've titled Message of Salvation in Acts chapter 13. Here, as we look at this, we see this phrase, the message of salvation. And perhaps you're like me, and this phrase does a couple of things to you. You hear this, and one, you experience some joy, but you also, if we're honest with one another, feel a little bit of fear or anxiety when you hear that, this message of salvation. Now, joy, we feel this because obviously if we've experienced salvation, if we've been redeemed, our entire world has changed. This message of salvation takes us from being enemies to friends, and many of us are here today simply because... This is true of us. We experience joy because we know the goodness of the one who made this message possible. However, if we're willing to be honest with one another, we recognize that hearing this phrase, the message of salvation, can bring some fear and anxiety to us. You see, this comes because when we hear this phrase, the message of salvation... We know that we have to share this message with others. You see, it's this task that brings us fear and anxiety. Again, if we're willing to be honest with one another, we can all affirm that we worry about sharing the gospel, don't we? This isn't a rhetorical question. You can give me a head nod, right? We worry about sharing the gospel sometimes. We've all felt or still fear This fear of proclaiming the message of salvation. There are a variety of reasons, right? Maybe we're afraid of what someone will say to us in response to that. Maybe we're afraid that we don't know enough to proclaim this message. Maybe we're afraid of how this will change our relationship with someone. That once we bring God into the equation, things have to be different, right? Whatever your reason might be, I recognize that you and I believe that sharing the gospel is a good thing, is something that we want to do, but oftentimes it brings us fear and anxiety. Over the years, churches and leaders have strived to try and figure this issue out, right? There have been many good things that have been done, many good and right things like evangelism training, outreach opportunities, Bible tracts, many things that have been put in front of everyone. I want to be clear that these are good and helpful things, but what has happened? 
A recent study done in 2019 showed that less than 25% of Christians surveyed reported that they shared their faith any time in the last six months. Less than 25% of Christians surveyed reported they shared their faith any time in the last six months. You see, I believe that in trying our best to play doctor, we have labored to treat these symptoms of fear, anxiety, of not knowing enough, but we've not found the real ailment. We've not found the real problem within us. If I may, I need you to consider a fire. Picture a fire in your mind, this beautiful bonfire. Perhaps you've been camping. Maybe you've got a fire pit. Picture this fire. Once this fire is lit, it stays burning as long as you provide the right fuel. For a fire, an example of the right fuel is going to be wood, right? That if you continue to place wood in a fire, what does it do? It burns and keeps going. An example of the wrong fuel is going to be water, right? If you've ever put water on a fire, what have been the results? It's gone out. You see, fires burn and stay burning as long as they have the right fuel. Now, beyond the fact that I'm an amateur Smokey the Bear, what does this have to do with our evangelism? What does it have to do with the message of salvation? You see, I believe that our problem is not the symptoms of fear, anxiety, and not knowing enough. Those are symptoms of the real problem. You see, I believe that you and I have this problem of all. You see, this fire represents our all of God, our desire to worship Him, and our reverent wonder at what the Lord has done in our lives. You see, when we feed this fire, our all, it burns bright. When we feed it with things like the message of salvation, it burns brighter. When we feed it with the things of the world, it grows dim. So I would ask you this question this morning. How is your fire doing? How is your fire doing this morning? You see, it's this question that provides an answer to all that ails us in our faith. Paul David Tripp is a brilliant writer, one that I encourage you to go read some of his books. But he writes, Whatever has captured the all of my heart will also set the agenda for things that I desire, think, choose, say, and do. You see, when it comes to sharing this message of salvation, we don't have a fear problem. We have an all problem. We don't have a fear problem. We have an all problem. That is, there's something in our life that has captivated us other than Jesus, and we now find reasons to not live for Him. If this is true, what can we do about this? What can we do to fix this? Well, if a fire has grown cold and dim, how do you start it back? The only answer is to throw good wood on the fire. The only answer is to put the right fuel on the fire.
The only way to restart this blaze of awe in our hearts, this view, this reverent wonder at what the Lord has done is to put the right fuel on the fire. You see, Paul today gives us what that good firewood is. He not only orients our heart to what is important here, but also on a very practical level. He shows us exactly what it is we need to say when we are sharing the message of salvation. If you'll look over at Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 26, we've got to read an extensive number of verses, so typically we would stand. I'm going to have you stay seated. Looking at verse 26, read with me. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what it is said in the prophets should come about, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. We're thankful that we have this opportunity to study the scriptures, to wrestle with our heart, to focus in on the important things today. To consider how this fire, this all we have of you is burning. And Lord, we simply have to ask the question of ourselves. Are we putting good wood in? Are we putting the right things into the fire to watch it burn and blaze for you? Or have we put things in it that have let it grow cold and dim? Lord, it is my hope and prayer as we study this section of scripture that yes we would understand some some very practical elements of how to share the gospel but 
More importantly, Lord, that we would reorient our heart around the things that are important, that is you and your glory. That we would set our gaze on heaven above, Lord, and that we would walk captivated by you and your glory. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we begin to wrestle with this section of Scripture, we have to begin with what Paul's beginning with. And he starts with this first section. He's describing the person of Jesus. He's describing the person of Jesus. That's our first point, the person of Jesus. To get some context, to understand where we're at, we've picked up and they... Paul and Barnabas are in the synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia, and they are addressing the crowd. And as they begin to address the crowd, Paul very clearly begins to share about the person of Jesus. Simply put, he begins to tell the gathered people about who Jesus is. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I've never shared the gospel before, or I've done it and it's been awkward and difficult. Maybe you don't even know what to do. Here is the answer. You talk about the one who has changed your life. Tell people about who Jesus is. You see, the first step in not just evangelism, but in recapturing our all is to reflect upon who Jesus is. As we look at these verses today, it's very easy to take them for granted. After all, most of us know this story of who Jesus is inside and out, right? He was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and we say it so casually. These are not just facts or just cold truths for us to face. These are all inspiring, life-changing words. This message, for thousands of years, has turned the world upside down. This message has changed countless lives across the face of this planet. This message has changed the lives of you and I. You see, we should not be driven to tears of boredom while reading this. No, rather we should have tears of joy that the God of the universe would step into our story. That if we could take a step back and affirm that we are not the center of the universe right? We would recognize the audacity of that statement, that the God of the universe, the one who created the stars in the sky and the ground beneath our feet, cares about my story. He cares about your story. This is the beginning of awakening our all, of putting that good wood on the fire to recognize that the God of the universe is concerned about you and I. That's what this story tells us. It's not a series of facts we read in a history book, but this is a part of our story. As we look into this section of Scriptures, starting with verse 26, Paul proclaims, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among whom you fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, 
which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. This is the beautiful message of the gospel. This is the beautiful story of who Jesus is. See, here in verse 26, Paul begins by providing an important truth to everyone who is listening. He proclaims that the message of salvation is for everyone. Isn't it incredible to know that just a few short years ago in our story, the church thought that the gospel was just for the Jews. They thought that the gospel was only applicable for them. Isn't it incredible to reflect upon this truth that the gospel is for anyone who believes? Take a moment to reflect upon your life. Who were you when you first believed? If you can think back to those days, who were you when you first believed? For me, I was this 18-year-old man looking for identity. I wasn't the worst in the world, but I wasn't the best. And I was searching for something to be an anchor, something to make this life worthwhile. And by God's grace, I found it. As you look back in your life, who were you when you first believed? For those of us who believe, we are different people today compared to that long ago day. Yes, I recognize there's change. It just comes from time between, but that's not what I'm referring to. What I'm pointing to is that we're different, not because of a work that we've done, but because of a work that's been done inside of us. This truth is important. No one is too far from the grace of God to be redeemed. As incredible as that sounds, Jesus can save anyone at any time from anything. And so Paul starts with this opener. I mean, he hits a ground rule double right off the bat, proclaiming very clearly that Jesus can save anyone, anywhere, anytime from anything. He then moves into this familiar story for us where he starts to tell this story of the life and ministry of Jesus. You see, we're familiar with this story, but Paul is addressing this idea of his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. We cannot truly understand who Jesus is if we do not understand these crucial elements. Simply put, Jesus was sent to die for our sins. That was plan A through Z. Jesus was always going to come to pay for the debt of our sin and shame. It was going to happen. Before God even created the heavens and earth, Jesus stood there amongst the Trinity and said, I will pay for them. 
And in this story, as Paul is addressing who Jesus is, he's saying that these leaders who rejected him, they should have known who he was. Yet they turned against him and condemned him. I find this section of the passage to be absolutely astonishing. We say this so casually that Jesus came to earth, both fully man and fully God, knowing that he would die. We say that so casually, yet he knew that this rescue mission, as we can call it, would come with great cost to him, but it would be successful. This is a jaw-dropping type of love that, frankly, I think we've gotten far too comfortable with just casually mentioning. I mean, truly, how can we speak of this type of love without an awe of the one who has paid it all for us? This isn't the type of love that you casually talk about in conversation. This is the one that you hit the brakes in the car and say, look me in the eye, you need to hear about this love. Paul continues and he says that they found in him no guilt worthy of death. Everyone, including Pilate, Pilate clearly addresses this in the scripture, says that he was innocent and blameless. Despite the injustice that is being done to him, he endured it all willingly. He ends his life not as a victim, but he gives his life up willingly so that you and I, so that we might be called children of God just like him. This is the type of love that makes every other love in the world look tame and insignificant in comparison. The love that we've experienced from any other man, woman, or child on this earth doesn't even hold a candle to this type of love. This is the type of love that the Greeks had multiple words to mean love for. They understood that this was a significant action. One that fundamentally changed the face of mankind. Paul continues and he completes this gospel summary as he's talking about this love that has been moved into action. And he gives us a very brief portion here, but he's illustrating that Jesus was dead and buried. He's making clear that this wasn't a fainting spell, that this wasn't a, a mystical moment. No, Jesus was dead. He was dead. He went into the tomb. His body grew cold. He was gone. And then this is immediately contrasted with the statement that God then raised him from the dead. Paul is emphasizing that the resurrection, this resurrection changes everything. Nothing will stay the same after this resurrection has happened. I mentioned this a few weeks ago during one of the sermons, but... The ancient world didn't have a foundation for the resurrection. They didn't understand what this would mean. The Greeks would deny that the resurrection was possible. The Jews, some of them said it was. Others said it wasn't. They argued over us. They didn't have a consensus. 
You see, the resurrection not only completes the story of Jesus, but it turns the common culture on its head immediately. Greeks don't have an answer. Jews don't have an answer. What can they say beyond the fact that Jesus perhaps has risen from the grave? Even today, even today as we engage with people, as people look upon the faith, the top thing that is questioned, that is challenged in the story of Jesus is the resurrection, right? People don't argue about the fact that Jesus maybe lived and said some of these things. They don't argue about the fact that Jesus was a good teacher. They don't argue about the fact that he was a moral man. They don't argue about the fact even that he died. But they'll fight tooth and nail to deny that he has been risen from the grave. You see, no one's worried about Jesus dying in our world today. No one's worried about the fact that he died. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. We're aware of that. No, they're worried about the fact that perhaps he might live. Because though the guaranteed death rate of every man, woman, and child in this building is that we will all die on this earth, there is one man who has defeated death. There is one man who has shown that he has life eternal in this life and the next, and his name is Jesus. No one's worried about the fact that Jesus died. They're worried that he might live. If Jesus lives, then if we can borrow from Josh McDowell, then this evidence demands a verdict. This demands a response. See, Paul's building up to this final verse in verse 31. He's building up here and he's pointing to the entire ministry, the entire life of Jesus. He's saying that these witnesses that he's talking about here, these witnesses, this is what they are here for. This is why they exist. They exist to ensure that the world can hear of the Christ, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. This is the role that you and I play in the world today. Not that we're apostles who've seen the resurrected Jesus in the flesh, right? Yet, we have experienced the resurrection when we repented of our sins. We too have, just like Jesus, crossed from death into life. We, in our day-to-day lives, are witnesses to the resurrection. You see, this message of salvation begins and ends with the person of Jesus. Jesus is who the story, the entire story, is about. And the truth is that we can't even tell our story without addressing who Jesus is and what he's done. That if we're honest, wherever you are in your life, Jesus has some role to play in your story. Yet knowing who Jesus is is not enough. Knowing who Jesus is is not enough to lead us into sharing the gospel. Knowing who Jesus is is not just enough to stoke that fire of awe in our heart. We're off to a great start, right? The logs are smoldering. There's something else we need. We need to look upon the work of Jesus. We need to look upon the work of Jesus. 
verse 32 reads, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. We'll stop right there in verse 37. As we're looking at this idea of the message of salvation, it's not enough to simply talk about who Jesus is. You see, it's errors like this that lead to ideas like Jesus is just a good teacher. Right? He's a moral man. He lived a life that is worthy of praise. All of those types of statements. No. This is absolutely a part of who he is. But you cannot understand who he is without addressing what he has done. See, Paul turns to the scriptures here to begin to speak about the work of Jesus. He's laboring to demonstrate from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. What does this have to do with our all? What does this have to do with our efforts at sharing the gospel? You see, it's from the scriptures that we know who Jesus is and what he has done. The only way that we can be in awe of God is if we've seen who He is and what He's done from the Scriptures. You see, these verses aren't just fairy tales. They're not just words of comfort. They're not just cute things that we can put on a coffee mug. No, these are life vests in a stormy sea and land is nowhere in sight. These are the only thing that we can depend upon. These are the only things we can measure truth by. And so as Paul begins to address the work of Jesus, he starts with this phrase in verse 32, good news. Because indeed the gospel message is one of good news for sinful people who are far from God. This good news is that God has fulfilled His promises to His people to bring redemption and reconciliation. These promises are indeed historical events that the people of Israel can point to and remember. But also, they're a holy covenant that has anchored the identity of Israel throughout its entire history. The story of Israel is this. They're rescued from slavery. They go into the desert. And Moses has gone a little bit too long and they decide that they need a new God. So they create a golden cow. I mean, how dumb is that, right? But they pick a cow of all things to worship. And they start this cycle of worshiping God, going into sin, God calling their sin out and calling them to repent. 
They don't repent. They get punished. They recognize their, whoa, consequences to our actions and we must repent. They return to God and the cycle starts over and over and over. Yet in the midst of that constant wheel of disaster that Israel's caught in, the Lord makes a way for His people when there was no way. You see, Paul begins to quote from the Old Testament here, and he quotes from three Old Testament passages that are establishing Jesus as the one who has been sent to fulfill this promise that has been made to Israel. The first one he quotes in verse 37, he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. This verse, it's already been attributed to the Messiah within Judaism, but Paul's making the connection clear for the listener that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants no confusion. He wants no argument. He's making clear that they look upon this passage and go, the Messiah's name is Jesus. You see, in this reference to Psalm chapter 2, Paul's dragging us back to the resurrection, the seminal moment in history. He uses the word today here, and contextually, it was referring to the day of Jesus' resurrection. And it's pointed to this fact that, yes, Jesus was always the Son of God for all eternity. And even during His time on earth, He was recognized as being fully God, as the Son of God. However, It was through the resurrection that he was exalted to God's right hand. It is through this that he was enthroned as king beside the Lord. It is through this that he was declared to be the son of God, but with power and authority. The Messiah is not someone who just stumbled into this. The Messiah is one who was sent specifically For this purpose, to redeem his people. His second reference in verse 34. This is from Isaiah 55, verse 3. And Paul is pointing back to God's promise that he would establish his descendants, speaking to David. He would establish David's descendant, an eternal throne, a kingdom that would last forever. This is a prophecy that comes to David. It's made to him. He who would not see this eternal reign, but would serve as a forefather to it. You see, when he uses the phrase, this holy and sure blessings of David, this is the promise that he's making to him. Yes, David, your time will pass, but your descendant will reign forever. Your time will pass, but your descendant will reign forever. See, this is in context with the language about corruption and decay, that it will not return to him, the one they're referring to as Jesus. And that takes us into that third reference found in verse 35. It's from Psalm 16, verse 10. See, Paul's trying to build out this argument about the work of Jesus, this comprehensive argument about the eternal work and nature of Jesus. He says, decay and corruption will not touch him. Jesus will live forever. Decay and corruption will not touch him. Jesus will live 
forever. It's all building to verses 36 and 37, where Paul compares David and Jesus. He says that David fell asleep. David died. David died. And his body decayed. Paul's indicating that David couldn't have been writing about himself. After all, David is dead and gone. His body is hundreds of years later, still decaying in a tomb. He is dead. He is gone. No, the one that David was writing about is the Messiah. Wonder of wonders, he was raised up by God and has escaped death and decay. You see, it's only through the resurrection of Jesus that the promises to David are fulfilled. Jesus is God's Holy One, seated on the throne forever. His life, His reign is eternal. What He has done, He has come to pay for a debt of sin and shame for His chosen people so that we might walk in the good works that the Lord has put before us. Paul is anchoring our hope to one that will not perish, to a permanent anchor. Rather than having a life vest that sweeps us to and fro on the seas, we have the rock of ages to cling to. More so that we cling to it, it holds us tightly. You see, this is the work of Jesus. This is why we should see the fires of all being stoked in our hearts because we do not serve a God in vain. We serve a God who is eternal and seated on His throne. That He has been called the King of kings and Lord of lords not on accident but for a specific purpose that He is the one who is promised. And so as we consider the work of Jesus, as we wrestle with what does this mean in our lives, we have to wrestle with this basic fact that this is intended to fuel our fires of all. This is intended to be a clear witness of who Jesus is and what He has done. But this leaves us with a response, right? That as Josh McDowell said, this evidence demands a verdict that if we see who Jesus is, we see what He has done, we must respond. That takes us to our final point, the response to Jesus. Look at verse 38 with me. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... That through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look you scoffers, be astonished, astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul finishes this section of Scripture with perhaps the most awe-inspiring phrase that we could find here. He says very clearly it is through this man, this Messiah, 
whose name is Jesus, that we can receive two blessings that the law could never provide to us. It is through this man that we can receive forgiveness of sins and justification before the throne of God. He makes it clear that the point of the law was to condemn. The point of the law was to show who we are in light of who God is. That we're to look at the law and go, I cannot keep this perfectly. Who will do it for me? And the one who would stand in the gap to bear the weight of the law is Jesus. And through trust in Him, we receive forgiveness of sins. That is that we turn away from our sinful selves. That we look to Jesus and we confess that we've fallen short of His standard of perfection. That we labor under the burden of the law and that we cannot keep it, we cannot bear it. We need Him to bear it. And so we cry out to Him and we receive this forgiveness of sin. Yet just as importantly, we receive this justification before the throne of God. Paul's beginning this idea of justification and weaving it together through the Scriptures for us, but justification, this is a legal term that we find in the Greek. It carries this idea of being made acceptable to God. You see, through faith in Jesus, one is made right with God, and then becomes acceptable to God. The law could never forgive us of our sins. The law could never make us acceptable before the Lord. It only served to condemn. It only served to convict. Only in Christ is one truly justified and forgiven of sin. Paul concludes this section with a warning to his listeners. He's pulling from Habakkuk, offering a warning to Israel, and he's speaking about the threat of Babylon invading if Israel did not repent. He's pointing to this present reality that we have, that God will once again bring judgment upon his people if they do not accept mercy and forgiveness that is being offered to them now through Jesus. You see, he's saying that if they, if we reject Jesus now, then we will be rejected by Jesus when he returns. If we reject Jesus now, we refuse this free gift of grace and forgiveness. He will in return reject us when he returns. For us, this should drive us to celebrate God's grace. This should move us to a reverent awe of who He is and what He has done for His people. That even in His call to faith and His warning of the consequences of our sin, this section is dripping with the mercy of God. God is faithful here, even when His people are faithless. For myself, this is an encouraging idea that I find in the Scriptures. 
I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I'm not perfect. Maybe you've caught that already. And even when I fail, God is still faithful to forgive. And some of you are chuckling, but you too are not perfect. I don't care what your spouse says, or maybe they're telling you the truth, you're not perfect. And even when you fail, God is still faithful to forgive you. See, this is the hope that we have. This is the message of salvation. That no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, you can find forgiveness through Jesus. As I've said several times today, this evidence demands a response. You see, I believe that our response should together to be to go to the Lord, to rejoice in reverent awe of who He is and what He has done in our lives. How He has empowered us to worship Him. How He has equipped us to proclaim the good work of what He has done in our lives. You see, I believe our response should be that we should repent of our sins. That we should rejoice with thankfulness that we have experienced His great mercy. And then we should proclaim the name of the one who has captured our all. As I've said, the evidence demands a verdict. And I would ask you today, what is your verdict? Who is Jesus and what, he has done, what has he done in your life? In the next few minutes, we'll go to the Lord in silent prayer and we'll have an opportunity to go to the Lord and simply answer the question, who are you and what have you done in my life? The worship team will come back up and this will be an opportunity for us to celebrate the good name of Jesus today. It is my hope and prayer that you have looked upon this evidence. You have looked upon who Jesus is and what he has done and said that this person and work of Jesus means that I need to follow him, that I need to repent of my sin and rejoice with thankfulness that I have experienced his great mercy. That's my prayer for you today. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me?